This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Wednesday, April 12th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Rebecca Jones is a brave whistleblower who stood up to powerful forces within her state of Florida and was made to pay an enormous price in order to protect a public who was being lied to. Or... Rebecca Jones is a serial fabulist who has been able to turn attention over her own misdeeds into a type of martyrdom. Increasingly, it seems like the latter explanation is the one that best fits. So to catch you up, Rebecca Jones was the state employee who in 2020 claimed Florida was faking their COVID data. She was fired, her home was raided, she filed a whistleblower suit, and along the way became a star on such outlets as MSNBC. Joining us now is the keeper of Florida data, Rebecca Jones, the former manager of data and surveillance for COVID-19 at the Florida Department of Health. Thank you very much for joining us again tonight, Rebecca. What What is the situation with the with the state of Florida's publicly available data? Is it still as as flawed, to put it mildly, as it was when you were fired? That was Lawrence O'Donnell. But a thorough investigations of her claims found that Jones's allegations had no merit. Well, her home was raided, that is true. But it was to recover data which she illegally obtained. She settled with the state, admitting guilt to a charge of illegally accessing the state's computer system. She paid $20,000 to cover the state's investigation costs. She performed 150 hours of community service, and she was forced to see a mental health counselor monthly. I don't want to be glib about the mental health counselor not working, But since then, Jones has lobbed a series of baseless and increasingly wild accusations to get attention or to get funding for her GoFundMe. She claimed to have inside information that Matt Gaetz was about to be arrested. She linked two articles that claimed to prove her various allegations, only to have it revealed that she had ghostwritten the articles. She claimed the report, which showed that her claims were baseless, actually exonerated her. To quote from NBC's Mark Caputo's write-up of that report, the independent report paints a portrait of an employee who did not understand public health policy or the significance of epidemiological data, did not have high-level access to crucial information, and leveled claims that made professional health officials skeptical. To quote from Rebecca Jones' Twitter, someone let Mark Caputo know he's a lying sack of shit. Jones has, in the past, been arrested multiple times for cyber-stalking and vandalism. She was fired from her job at Florida State for having a sexual relationship with and then threatening a student days ago... Her 13-year-old son was arrested for making death threats against his school. Jones then took to social media to argue, quote, they kidnapped my son, claiming that her son was, quote, taken on the governor's orders and was arrested, quote, for non-threatening Snapchat memes. Now, Vice has a great analysis of the Snapchat conversation and memes, and her son spread information which was by any reasonable standard disturbing, threatening, and worthy of investigation. A classmate alerted authorities so Jones's son could get help. 
Jones has destroyed her own credibility since becoming a hero to many anti-DeSantis news consumers, since becoming Forbes 2020 Technology Person of the Year, since being the recipient of a hagiographic and glamorous spread in Cosmopolitan. But the damage isn't just to her reputation. Her ascendance hurts us all. For one thing, she got the Democratic nomination for House of Representatives in Florida's first congressional district in 2022. Her Opponent Matt Gates trounced her, but a more serious candidate might have done better against one of the most embattled and ridiculous members of the House of Representatives. Hey, Madison Cawthorn lost, granted it was in a primary, but he's out. Lauren Boebert also almost lost, granted her seat is Republican, plus, you know, high single digits. Florida's first congressional district is Republican, plus 16. So it would have been harder, but still, her status as a person you can't take seriously simply torpedoed any chance of Gates being held accountable by the electorate. And then there's the problem of the state of Florida actually engaging in COVID misinformation. The Florida Surgeon General, Joseph Ladapo, announced that young men should not get the COVID vaccine 19. But he cited fake data that purported an increased risk of cardiac-related death for men ages 18 to 39. It would be good if there were a credible whistleblower in the state to draw attention to this, or if the last extremely high-profile whistleblower on the issue weren't lying so much. Florida needs the truth. It doesn't need a self-identified martyr whose accusations are shot through with self-dealing and inaccuracy. It's a horrible situation, most of all for Jones's son, who would benefit from responsible parenting, not reckless pandering. It's all too much to ask, I guess, too much to correct, especially to correct on some of the most prominent outlets that made Rebecca Jones a star in the first place. On the show today, warlords meet meme lords and discord is both sown and served. But first, Baratunde Thurston is a podcaster, author, producer, TV host. He's interested in citizenship, or as he frames it, how to citizen, verb. Good premise. We'll get into it. Baratunde joins me in a wide-ranging discussion that encompasses ChatGPT, Bahrain human rights activists, and how to be black. Baratunde Thurston, up next. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. My next guest, Baratunde Thurston, contains multitudes. There are four main streams collecting into the mighty delta that is Baratunde, as I see it. You've got the tech stream, the race stream, the comedy stream, and the activism stream. So much more than that, of course. But when there is a confluence and it all comes together, 
It takes the form of, say, his new podcast, How to Citizen, or his book, How to Be Black, which came out in 2012, or the fact that he was the digital director of The Onion and that he did, he worked on The Daily Show, where he was an instrumental supervising producer and oversaw original digital content. It's always a pleasure to talk to him. Baratunde, welcome back, I believe back, to The Gist. Mike, it is good to be back on The Gist. I like the, uh, you painted a strong geographic visual Mm -hmm. of these four channels coming together in a delta. And so two observations, technology, race, activism, comedy, that's a track. Uh-huh. Oh, leading us somewhere. And and that I like that outdoors reference because I also am hosting this PBS series, America Outdoors. And we're actually in production for our second season right now. You're catching me in between field shoots. And so even subconsciously, you were channeling uh, another project. Yeah, I, I was. I think it might have been consciously because as I was saying it, I was picturing it in a uh, bird's eye shot, uh, a crane shot maybe, or a drone shot actually, less expensive. And I saw you on horseback, which occasionally happens in this series. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And and that image is something, if people are too uh, lazy, I guess, to find for themselves, they could have a robot uh, generate it for them with some uh, some AI and just say aerial shot, bird's eye view, baritunde on horseback uh, at the delta of four rivers. Yes, but the but the vision, the faces always look a little weird and like it's melting. That is yeah. one of the problems with yeah. the AI, which you also write about for Puck and in other places. But let me just check in. Yeah. Where I've been listening to How to Citizen, and we've been concerned with many of the same problems of, in our republic. We come at it from sometimes slightly different ways. But where's your head at? Where's your head at in terms of... How optimistic are you about the future of this enterprise called America? Yeah, I'm glad you clarified. Um, right. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm feeling France. Sometimes I'm just an earthling. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like- Well, I thought you meant out. the podcast itself. We're going to have a season <laughs> five, Mike. And the worse it gets, the better our ratings do. <laughs> I, um, how am I feeling about the prospects? Level of optimism. It varies. And it is, I am not entirely- pessimistic, uh, though pessimism is called for. And and I think too much optimism is naive. So I remain hopeful. I think that's a survival technique. And there's a bit of genuine belief that we can still adjust this experiment in order to create outcomes that are better for more of us. And that we can approach this beautiful, bold vision we have in this country of liberty and justice for all. Sounds so good on paper especially once you allow uh, most of the population to read that paper. So it's a great idea. It remains a great idea. And, uh, and we remain far short of it. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm hopeful based on evidence and my own spirit and my own need to survive and believe things can get better, that we will. Um, I know we can. I think we will on most days. If I were to track your mood, your level of optimism, and you had a yeah. dial, we did a dial focus group, and it was after mm. you did specific interviews, was there one or another from the past season or seasons where it would spike, where you got much more hopeful than you had before, had been before? Oh, man. Um, you know, there's one in our technology season, season three, with uh, Esra Al Shafi, 
And I think we called that one move slow and build things. Mm -hmm. And this was a counterpoint to the move fast and break things of the tech world and social media, which has ripped uh, apart so much of our social fabric. And Esra is this Bahraini activist who built a social network that doesn't destroy democracy. That was just, first of all, yo, thank you. Thank you for that, Esra. <laughs> no one saw that market niche going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A non-democracy destroying social network is possible. And it's real. It's not just like a possibility. It's a reality. And so she was so fiery. She was so matter of fact. And she was so real. Like she's a tangible person with an actual community and numbers you can measure. Like, oh, it doesn't all have to look like the Zuckerverse. There's a whole nother world that we can build that looks differently in a world where we're told to just kind of take it. Like bright, smart, genius people who dropped out of college and wear hoodies, but don't get tased by the cops. They have decided our future should look like this. And I left that feeling so fired up and a good reminder that we could build something else. Now her platform is called Majal, right? Is that it? Yeah. And she's from Bahrain, which is, she's a human rights activist in Bahrain, which is not always a comfortable position in that society. So right. how, how good is it going? Yeah, so it's it's going, I think that's the other part that was hopeful for me. She's doing it in a place where the struggle is more real. Um, and so occasionally we leave the borders of the U.S. in the in the show. And it's a good reminder for me as well, we're all self-centered. Like my problems are the biggest problems in the world and my country has the biggest problems and maybe the biggest answers. I don't know. But like to go out of that context and be like, oh, Bahraini uh, LGBTQ women are building technology products. What? And we never hear that story. And and the level of repression and identity suffocation, you know, the, the making illegal uh, of one's being which we are flirting with over here, and in many cases going beyond flirting, uh, and depending on the state we're talking about, even in those environments, we can still citizen, right? We can still show up for each other and do all the things that we believe that word means as a verb as opposed to as a noun. So yeah, it's, it's not, on the surface, Bahrain is tougher in so many ways. And maybe because of that, they've evolved a different tech ecosystem to provide them with a, a true public square, not Elon's private Soho house version, but like an actual one that serves people versus the CEO's ego. And that's really great. That's really and great. does is it allowed to exist by the uh, royal government there? Does it fly under the radar? How incorporated is it into the civic life of Bahrain? That's a great question. And I will have to defer on hyper-specific answers. It is, I know it's a nonprofit organization. I know it's got a lot of ID protection because of the things people discuss there. I don't believe you have to have like an encrypted connection to join it, but I do know it is uh, the onboarding process has some gates to get through. You don't just get to kind of flip a switch and log on and start you know, throwing bombs, you know, real or, or imagined. So the thing about move slow and fix things is that the slow blank movement seems to really be the balm that is called for in so many of our enterprises. The slow yeah. food movement, which is a great way to get taste and nutrition and is a necessary corrective to fast food. The slow news movement, because we're so bombarded with information. I think maybe the future needs to be a lot slower than it is, which can bring you, I don't know, I immediately think 
think of how quickly they're going with AI, but it's probably just uh, how it interacts with human beings. I mean, like your PBS show, getting outside just slows things down in general. And the world, technology can make things fast. I think you probably need a human to inject the slowness that is necessary uh, in almost all, quote unquote, advances or examples of progress. I agree with that. You remind me of something my wife, Elizabeth, uh, she and I talk about tech stuff a lot. And she has brought up this idea that we are being asked, well, not really asked, we are being expected and sometimes forced to live in different time zones, not as an Eastern standard and Pacific standard, but uh, kind of the pace at which we are expected to live oscillates really quickly. In one moment, we're moving at the speed of email. At the next, it's the speed of like eating lunch. At the next, it's the speed of generative AI. At the next, it's the speed of texting or managing a shopping list, like or taking in media through multiple screens, multiple senses at the same damn time. And we're not meant to do that, right? We are literally, we have an evolution. It's We've been baked in this oven for a really long time. And now we've turned the temperature too high, another point, but how we adjust and, you know, the rapid change of pace. I mean, if you think about, you know, transmissions in a vehicle, you can really work that transmission or work that engine or motor if it's an electric car, if you're constantly modulating speed as opposed to more easily ramping into it. That's not to say we should never move lightning fast or never move, you know, turtle slow, but going from turtle to speed of light to a donkey to motorcycle to jet engine you know, to speed a light again, that creates a lot of wear and tear on our sort of internal human transmission. And, and we pay a price for that in lack of focus, in, in diet, in health, in sense of where do we belong? When do we belong? And, and I think the velocity of our life is something that we are going to have to contend with more because when we just put ourselves on that kind of industrial production path, which a lot of technology under the guise of making life easier and, and increasing productivity is just making you a better worker. Every every tool that was promising more leisure, more, more free time has delivered more work time, every single one. And it's always, it's a colonization of our own humanity by tools that are sold to us as liberators of those things. Yeah. And so we gotta be really, really aware of that and careful of that, and to your word, conscious, you know, about how we choose to deploy these. And what I care about is that that we're participating in those choices and that we don't feel like we're just receiving alleged wisdom from a chosen few. I think maybe there are some tools, like I think of the washing machine, that was a famous Steven Pinker example, was extremely liberating tool. Yeah. Um, Maybe it has, I think it probably, my theory is, it has something to do with the complexity of the task. Uh, Information tools definitely add to our cognitive load and don't save us time. But when you're taking a very simple, straightforward task and automating it, quite often it does save time. And probably because of that, because we had, you know, a century of automation and automation and progress seem to be humane and tied up with giving people back more time, we made the mistake or allowed our uh, capitalist uh, technocrats to foist these mistakes upon us. Well, and then with that extra time, you know, it, these tools have delivered on freeing us in the short term of some of that that temporal obligation. Boom. Yes. But how do what do we do with that opportunity? Most of us don't feel that we have gained 
in real dollars. You know, you can look at the measurements of the power of a dollar or in time with loved ones. If you Americans are notoriously unhappy on a GDP slash per capita comparative basis to like Northern Europeans or South Americans who have way less money than us, but a lot more joy and happiness and familial connection and lower rates of depression in some of these societies because the money and the productivity turns out don't feed the soul. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so there's something else. So how do we, what do we do with that time that we gained from the washing machine? What are we going to do with that time that we gained from not sending emails thanks to the, the Gmail is going to write our emails for us now and Excel is going to analyze our spreadsheets for us. We're just going to fill it with more work if history, if most of history is most of the future. And, but each of these is an opportunity to kind of assess, ironically, to pause <laughs> and say like, okay, here comes another wave. You know, we're standing on the shore. There's always waves coming in. It's natural. I would never want to stop the ocean. So we're not going to stop technology, but are we going to try to fight this wave? Are we going to try to ride this wave or are we going to be subsumed by this wave? Right. Of your, of the four strains I laid out, one is activism and one is tech. I think those yeah. are interrelated in that it's a little bit about the fast news and the urgency of the activist. Every election since, I don't know, probably 2000 has been pitched as the most important election of our lifetime. And I honestly believe that most of the activists really do think it is. And you, of course, uh, Hillary versus Donald Trump was a really important election. But if these are always the stakes and are always said to be the stakes, I mean, at some point, you lose a little bit of credibility. And maybe from the activist uh, who is acting just with that next election ahead of them, how could you tell them not to do everything they can to gin up turnout and to make it seem like a life or death choice? But the cumulative effect, I think probably has something to do with the general low-grade depression and sense of doomerism that we're all experiencing. Elections are important. They are not the only thing. Um, and we have gotten really focused. It's almost like uh, the Christian that focuses on the afterlife as opposed to the here and now. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's all Christians. I'm saying the Christian who does that or or any you know person of faith who is like, I'm doing it all. So I'll get into that promised land. We can make a promised land now. And, and we can practice democracy now. We can improve our communities now. We don't need to make our primary investment in civic action being the delegation of our power to another person. And the person who makes the, the, the grandest promises. If people seeking office would spend a share of that time educating themselves on what's actually happening in their community and then educating their community on the levers of power within. You know, I was visiting Charlotte, North Carolina recently, um, a week ago as of you and I talking, like exactly seven days, speaking at their Charlotte Shout uh, Ideas Festival. And I met with this activist turned politician, Braxton Winston. There's a famous photo of him shirtless with his fist up in the faces of a bunch of you know, military level armed Charlotte Mecklenburg police after their murder of, uh, I believe, Keith Lamont. Scott, Keith Lamont Hill. I'm, I apologize for getting the names wrong. There are too many to keep track of now. But he was out there on the kind of you know, Black Lives Matter, abolish the police, and he still believes Black Lives Matter. He's still Black. 
his methods, you know, he gets into the halls of power and we were just chatting over coffee. And I don't think he mind me saying this, like he really understood how power moves, the, the, the value of the zoning, you know, that leads to the gentrification, which leads to the displacement and kind of economic violence befalling only certain communities and how the schools are getting resegregated. And part of his charge as this like at-large city rep is just educating the people on that so that you're informing the, the activists you're talking about on the lay of the land, right? <laughs> you're you're lazing the target before you send in the strike team yeah. and you're doing recon. And, and so that's all combat level language. It's very warlike. It doesn't have to be, but there are so many other opportunities for us. There are so many of us who can't participate in the political process through voting anyway, because we have dumb laws. And so what are other ways we can express that? So I just, I'm, I'm exhausted by the kind of award season kind of campaigning version of democracy we have, where it's like all about this epic fight and nothing about the work in between. And I think we would be mentally healthy and small d democratically healthier if we focused on the spaces in between. In 2012, you came out with the book, How to Be Black. I don't know if there was ever a, a paperback yeah. with a new chapter, but if you had to do the 2023 update, how thick would that new update be? How much have we learned or how much uh, has your impressions of how to be black changed? It's gotten, uh, I think, more beautiful. You know, there's, there's a cheeky part of me, she like, I just make a postcard version, right? Just... <laughs> Be you however you are, and, and that's black, if you're black. I mean, that doesn't apply to white people mm -hmm. uh, or other non-black people. Yes. But I think there's, you know, a lot of what I was uh, calling attention to in that book was the simplification of blackness and the reduction of it to simply threat, to simply thug, to simply good dancer, sexual overperformer, to simply hard in terms of the masculine black identity that has been foisted upon me and, and a lot of the men I know. And we are seeing such a much broader range. We have a TV series out now about a black woman serial killer. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's like a civil rights accomplishment. Like, yeah, we can, we can mass murder people too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's right. So there's a, there's, um, you know, the gender expression within the black community and, and then the sexuality expression, there's a much more open conversation, more acceptance, less demonization, dehumanization around that, not totally eradicated, but just much more, much more nuanced. Um, and, and the idea of focusing not just on struggle, but also on joy, you know, that, that our time here cannot just be in response to whiteness. It's like a reactive way to exist. And, and that is a really tough, if not impossible road to freedom. You, you can't get free by appealing to someone else to liberate you. It's, it's already a trap, just linguistically. So I, I'm really excited by a lot of what I've seen in terms of how I observe the country today in Black people's idea of ourselves and in our representation in the wider culture. Uh, that said, there's still ancient America stuff going on and ancient human stuff. I don't think we're that unique. We just turn things up a little louder, like we're all Texans or something. Everything's bigger in America, not just Texas. And so there's some lessons we are refusing to absorb um, and they just kind of like pass through the system and we got to keep trying to digest them. And that is unchanged from a decade ago or a hundred years ago or 400 years ago. 
Bartunde Thurston is the host of the How to Citizen podcast. He's the host and executive producer of the PBS series America Outdoors. And he's a founding partner and writer at Puck. Didn't even mention that. Bartunde, great to talk to you. Mike, thank you so, so much. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having me. And for PESCA Plus subscribers, we get an additional portion of my conversation with Baratunde. We get a tad personal. It's not uncomfortable at all. And if you are interested in ad-free gists or the bonus content offered to PESCA Plus subscribers, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. And while you're going to places on the internet, why not go to iTunes, where we could use a good review, should you be so inclined. And now the spiel. It's not just an insouciant message board that imperils the freedom and lives of hundreds of thousands of innocent Ukrainians. Oh, I mean, it is that. It is certainly that. So fans of the Wow Mao Discord group got to sharing classified documents which could embolden the Russians and weaken the resolve of the Ukrainians and the flexibility of U.S. allies. The New York Times reporting on Wow Mao says that sometimes members leak classified documents to win arguments. Sometimes they want video game makers to show more realistic weaponry and they point to it by giving up top secret documents displaying the weaponry. To quote the Washington Post in 2022, no one has ever leaked classified documents related to national security in a public forum to win an argument until last year twice and then again this year. Beginning in 2021, players of War Thunder, a popular free-to-play vehicular combat video game, have thrice posted classified documents related to three tanks of British, French, and Chinese origin in an online forum dedicated to the game. The point was the gun turrets in the game weren't real. Here's a classified document showing what real looks like. Now on the Wow Mao Discord server, there was another tranche of classified documents shared. Mao himself, or the guy who is Wow Mao, doesn't run the Discord. It's more like a fan club of his. He relegates his meme lordery to YouTube. And there he took to YouTube to communicate to his fan club, who has been dabbling in felonies punishable by lengthy prison terms. I can sort of understand how sharing big private military secrets could be a funny thing to do among your internet friends, but come on, take care of yourself and stay away from doing stuff like this. But remember I said, it's not just the Discord boards. No, it's also the most downloaded app in America. Not even an American app. Talking about TikTok. Heard about it? Well, most members of the U.S. Congress and the administration point to TikTok as a potential danger to security, and they mean that ByteDance, the Chinese owner, might be harvesting data. Okay, here's another way that TikTok could threaten security. So in Norway, there's a company called Namo. It's a weapons manufacturer. I like that, Norwegian Ammo better than the Andorran howitzer firm and how. Anyway, Namo is one of Europe's leading producers of artillery shells. The factory is jointly owned by Norway and a Finnish defense firm, and they're trying to ramp up production because the Ukrainians desperately need artillery shells. They can, conceivably, if all starts going well, produce 200,000 shells a year, far from sufficient, entirely necessary, in order to keep the Russians from totally overrunning Ukraine. But apart from mechanical difficulties and technical difficulties and the supply chain, there is this wild card. To quote the New York Times, NAMO is also facing a more novel challenge to its future production, potentially competing with 
TikTok for Southern Norway's available energy supply after the popular video sharing app moves into a nearby data storage facility in late November. TikTok thwarting Ukrainian defense. Seems reasonable if you're not familiar with all that goes on in Ukraine. Here's a snippet from just one random day's development last September, Reuters reporting. Newly freed from Russian occupation, residents of Balaklia, Ukraine, in the Kharkiv province, wept as they received humanitarian aid on Tuesday, their city newly reclaimed and liberated by Ukrainian troops after what some described as months of horror. And here is the most popular TikTok video of all time. Uh, that is Bella Porch uh, lip-syncing 10 seconds of a song called M to the B. Now, she does cross her eyes quite cutely at the end, so it's very important for national security, for the fate of the free world. Here's the seventh most liked video in the history of TikTok. I chose the one that's the most liked that's not actually a lip-sync. It is a girl barking at her dog, and then the dog barks back. Bark at your dog. Woof! And by way of contrast, just so you understand the stakes involved, because that was pretty important, here's another clip from just one day of the Ukrainian conflict chosen randomly. It's the same Reuters report as the one I already played. But some paid the ultimate price for freedom. This woman's son died in gunfire as the Russians were fleeing. I screamed so that the whole Balaklia could hear. I thought the sky would break. I screamed at Putin. I cursed this war. I cursed Putin. But no one will give me my son back. Well, obviously, artillery shells are important. I would argue as important as M to the B. Ukrainians can't live without them. They can't survive without them. But resources aren't unlimited. And in Norway, they're going to have to make a tough choice. Do you need to devote the energy they have to saving the lives of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians or M to the B by Bella Porch? She does have like 93 million followers. What does Putin have? And he kind of has an unfair advantage because he could commute the prison sentences of prisoners and force them to like him on TikTok or take up arms or something. Clemenceau once said, war is much too serious a matter to be trusted to the military. Okay, but I'd rather trust the defense of an otherwise defenseless people to the military than to the internet. Here's another quote, politics is war without bloodshed, while war is politics with bloodshed. And you know who said that? Mao Zedong. Wow, Mao? No, actually, wow, Mao is the guy who said this. I'm a shitposting internet micro-celebrity, and I'd like to keep it that way. Yeah, I think we all would. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the philanthropic outreach coordinator for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.